Thank you so much for hosting me again. I'd like to spend the next few minutes in Revelation chapter 1, all right? Um, but we have some other things that we want to, I want to make sure we read and, be, and are aware of before we get there. But let me say, first of all, how thrilled I am to be here and to be in a setting where um, we're together across the generations and the ages. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to be here as a family. And I want to start by just asking a question that hopefully for every child, young adult, uh, adult, uh, elderly folks, all of us should be thinking about perhaps for the next few minutes, and that is, why are we actually doing what we're doing here right now? Um, and, and we live at, uh, we actually live in a time, at least in our part of the world, where um, the commitment to perhaps a community of faith or to regular attendance uh, in church um, or being part of a community is something that's often considered a bit more optional or perhaps something that doesn't necessarily reflect directly on one's faith. So I don't know if you've ever had these conversations with people who will say, my worship, my Sabbath is to go walking in the wilderness or, you know, I just get alone with God or when I sit down with a cup of tea and read a good novel, I really sense God's presence there. And sometimes in a world in which these kinds of conversations are commonplace among the people of God, right, among those who name Jesus as Lord and Savior, uh, when people are asking those kinds of questions, it's easy to get defensive and say, oh my goodness, isn't that a sign of the times? We're sliding backwards, people are giving up on church. But the reality is, we could look at this from another side and say as well, why do we do what we do? Well, what's the point? And if we do it occasionally, do we do this simply because we've read this in the text and we know we're supposed to do it? Is there something about rhythm and routine and pattern that's important? Why do the people of God gather as we do? Because there are so many other claims for our attention in the world. Doesn't it feel like that? So many other claims. I want you to know that in America is not the first time the people of God have ever faced those questions. Right? All down the centuries, the people of God have, have had to wrestle with this question, who are we? What are we doing in the world? Why do we gather the way we do? And what about all those other voices that clamor for our attention? So if there's, it doesn't matter whether you're 6 or 86 and you're asking the question, why are we doing this again this way? And maybe it's important for us to evaluate how we do things. But in terms of why we're here, what it means to be the people of God in the world, I believe that the book of Revelation is actually asking precisely those questions. The book of Revelation is a, a text, a document that's fundamentally about worship. I hesitate to use that word, and I'll tell you why. Because almost all people who use that word in Christian context think it refers to music and singing, or that part of the service we do until we get to the really good stuff. No, no disrespect. What we had here was wonderful. But you understand, people have this perception. But what is worship really? So let me fill it out with a couple of other terms. Worship is about your values. It's about your allegiance, my allegiance. It's what we witness to. That's our worship. 
It's what we sacrifice for. And the book of Revelation is asking those kinds of questions. All right? So I want to ask the question, what's the purpose of Christian worship? What real-life value does what we're doing right now have when we leave and tomorrow and next week? And uh, does it really accomplish anything at all? Because I will tell you that from the perspective of at least some folks in our society, what we're doing here is not terribly significant. In fact, for some folks, this would seem like a waste of time. And the people to whom the book of Revelation uh, were, was written to, those Christians in Asia Minor were struggling with exactly those questions. Why are we doing what we do? And in light of all of the other voices clamoring for our attention and asking for our allegiance, why should we continue to invest and be a part of this? Well, the book of Revelation is a one-off. By that I mean there isn't anything else quite like it in the biblical text, at least as a whole document. There are other places in Scripture where parts of documents or smaller passages, particularly in the Hebrew Bible prophets, have apocalyptic kinds of themes. But the book of Revelation is a different kind of book than a gospel or a letter or a psalm or anything else we find in the Bible. And so it requires that we train our imagination to hear what it is that God is really saying to us through this very different way of communicating. But I bring three assumptions to the way I read the book of Revelation. Number one, I think the book made sense to the first people who ever heard and read it. So as surprising as it seems to us, or as puzzling as sections of it may seem to us, it did not seem that way to the first readers. They may not have liked what they read or heard, but they understood what it was saying. The second assumption I have is that we have to know what an apocalypse is in order for us to be able to really ask the question of what it means and what it's trying to say. And here's my shorthand version for tonight of what an apocalypse seeks to do. It is an entertaining, captivating, graphic portrayal of good and evil, of God's salvation and the threats to God's shalom in the world, all rolled into one. It's an HD, a high-definition IMAX thriller in the ancient world. That's what an apocalypse was. It brought together all of those features of gripping entertainment, and for hearers and readers, that's exactly how it functioned. All right? So the tools of an apocalyptic writer are symbolic language and phrases. And it's important that we recognize that certain things in the book of Revelation, phrases and terms that get used, we need more than just an English dictionary in order to understand what the author is referring to. There's a set of symbols that the author uses it. And at times, he overtly tells us what some of these symbols mean. This author is a poet, all right? He's a pastor and a poet, and he's trying to grasp the imagination of these Christians and invite them to see themselves as people who have been given the greatest mandate possible on the face of the earth. Um, I want to begin then by saying finally that Revelation is a Christian text. I believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is resonant in that text. The same Jesus who said, love your enemies, also appears, in my view, 
in this final document. And I say that because that's not obvious to everyone who reads it. It sounds to some people as though God is quite wrathful, violent, vindictive as they read through the pages of Revelation. So all we're going to have time for tonight is to take a brief look at Revelation chapter 1 and then make some observations about how the author presents the Lord Jesus and how he presents the role of Christian communities. And then we'll come back at the end and ask, so how can we respond? And what does that mean about how important what it is we do here really is? All right? So the first thing that the book of Revelation does is that it introduces us to an unlikely king. All right? Uh, there's a lot of kingdom language that floats around uh, Christian circles. And Christians often talk about being part of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. But in order for there to be a kingdom, there, at least in that particular train of thought, there has to be a king. So what kind of king is it that is at the head of this kingdom? That's the first question we're going to ask. And then we're going to ask the second question. So what is it like to participate in this kingdom? So let's go to the book of Revelation. And in just a moment, I'm going to read from chapter 1. Uh, but what I want to do first is read from Exodus 19. All right? And in Exodus 19, the first six verses, we find a scene at the foot of Mount Sinai where the people of God are gathered and being prepared precisely for a mandate as God's people. And I want us to hear that language in the background. So, from Exodus 19, I'll just read the first six verses. On the third new moon, after the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They had journeyed from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the Israelites. So with those words kind of resonating in the background, understanding how Israel understood themselves to be called by God, rooted first of all in Genesis 12 in the calling of Abraham and the promise to Abraham and his descendants, and then gathered as not no longer Abraham's family, but now a nation of Abraham's family at the foot of Mount Sinai, this is the first time the language of kingdom appears just this way in the story of Israel, right? And so it's that that we have in the background as we move to Revelation chapter 1. And as we look at Revelation chapter 1, it's going to be important that we just keep in mind that this is the story that John the author is working with, all right? He knows about Sinai. He understands what it was that God urged his people to live into. And now John is reframing all of this in light of what he knows about Jesus as God's Messiah. Okay, so the opening lines of Revelation, if you have it open in front of you, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but if you have it open in front of you, they announce the unveiling, the surprising disclosure 
of Jesus Christ. And uh, that little word of Jesus Christ is very important. By the way, students in school, when you take English and grammar, the prepositions are the most important words in a sentence. And why is that? Because all the big concepts that are floating around in a sentence don't make any sense if you don't have the right connecting words to put them together. So for John to say, this is the apocalypse, the surprising disclosure of Jesus the Messiah, the disclosure of Jesus means two things here at the same time. It's from Jesus, the disclosure of Jesus, from Jesus, it's also about Jesus as Messiah. So at the same time that this is a message from Jesus, it is a message about who Jesus is. And that's incredibly consistent with the way the Gospels portrayed Jesus in his earthly life and ministry. Jesus came announcing the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. But he didn't just come announcing the good news of the kingdom. He came embodying, living out the true identity of what it meant to be and to act and to enact the kingdom of God. So I've often said to students especially that if you want to know what God might act like, just watch what Jesus did. If you want to know what it would sound like for God to speak, in the face of all the revelation in the other scripture we have, if you want to hear the voice of God, listen to what Jesus has to say. He's not only the bringer of the message, he's also the content of the message. And so I think that's an important thing to remember as we try to think about why do we come together and why do we do this thing we call the people of God and how do we do all of this we remind ourselves that who we are is rooted in who Jesus both was and the announcement of the message of the kingdom that he brought. So we're going to pick it up then. If this is both from Jesus and about Jesus, let's pick up in verse 5 when the author actually tells us the first things he'll tell us about who Jesus is. All right? I want to just make the point that as the author says what he says about Jesus, he's referring to real people living real lives in a real place, right? This actually matters for how they live. And, and what he does is present Jesus, not as some abstract reality, but how the message of Jesus shapes the way these people might live the life of the kingdom together in Asia Minor. So in the first place, we look at Revelation 4 and, uh, 1, 4, and 5. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. I want to pick up that particular phrase. So I, and I want to do this all with the question in the back of our minds, why do we do what we do? Well, it's rooted in this identity right here. Jesus is presented as the ruler of the kings of the earth. And the first thing to point out is that this is picking up language from Psalm 89, uh, in which uh, the Davidic king, the son of David, 
the greater Solomon, the one who will carry out the mission of the line of David, is described in these terms. Faithful witness, firstborn, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Here's the interesting thing. This phrase, the ruler of the kings of the earth, is also a common apocalyptic description of those powers in the world that are hostile to the work and the way of God in the world and the people of God who identify with him. So for the author to say, here's who Jesus is. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. What he's suggesting to these Christians in Asia Minor is the God you worship, the Jesus you worship and serve and gather around this is the one who truly has the last word when it comes to all the powers and all the messages and everything that confronts you in day-to-day -day life. And here's the important thing for us to remember. These Christians living real lives in real places in Asia Minor were confronted with and bombarded with the good life as sold to them by the empire known as Rome. In Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, this was a wonderful place to be a Roman citizen for the most part. They had some of the best agriculture. They had some of the greatest wealth that was accrued outside of the city of Rome was in this region of the world, in western Turkey, what was then known as the province of Asia Minor. So, like in any Christian congregation, as you guys will know, there are some who have more resources than others. We have the rich and the poor and the in-between, right? The, the entire spectrum is reflected in any given community for the most part. And that would also have been true in these churches in Asia Minor. Most of these Christians would have been confronted on a daily basis in the Roman world with this message, might makes right, right? The Roman emperor was right. Why? Because he could. Because he said so. Because he could flex his muscles. The entire empire was understood to exert its control and its influence across the Mediterranean world. There was no disputing the empire. And those who did were inevitably brought in a what was called a triumphal procession and dragged back to the capital of the empire and shown off as the newest, latest slaves of this empire. Rome had all the power. And then, here's the other thing Rome did. They justified that power with religious language. They said that it was the favor of the gods that had given them this power. And that it didn't matter actually how they got there to that power, but the gods had now granted this favor. And so the best thing all citizens could do was play along and acknowledge that the gods had given them this favor. Let me ask you this question. Is there anything you've ever experienced in your lives here in the greater Dayton area, or as you've watched perhaps the national news or followed the media, or is there anything in your local social context here in this region, in this area of Ohio, where you've ever thought, hey, that's not right. That's not fair. That's an abuse of power. Someone has just stepped over the line. Someone is hoarding for themselves power and influence. Some of the kids may be thinking, my teacher does that every week, right? And uh, for those of you who are homeschooled, don't nod your heads because we all know who your teacher is. 
but, but here's the interesting thing, right? All of us are confronted in different ways, at different times, in different places, with the injustices of the might-makes-right approach to power. And when the author of Revelation says Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, here's not, here's not what he's saying. He's not saying, I know you guys have seen some big bullies in the Roman Empire and all, but our God is the toughest God of all, right? We've got the biggest bully. He's on our side, right? The first guy you draft for your football team, right? He's our guy. People are tempted to read the Bible this way. Why? Because we live in a world where might makes right. And so the assumption is often the Christian God, the Christian figure of Jesus must be just more powerful, more able to exert his interests and his influence in the world. But that's not really what the phrase the ruler of the kings of the earth means. What it means is this, this figure, this Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, has the ability to boundary, to put in perspective, to in some final way check the abuse of power and the abuse of position and status that we see that runs rampant in the world in which we live. This Jesus does this by being a faithful witness and by being the one who rises from the dead and shows a different way, right? This Jesus forgives his enemies. This Jesus offers Yahweh's shalom to the broken in the world. This is how he becomes the ruler of the kings of the earth. His coronation as king of creation is on a Roman cross. Okay. Now, I just saw a lot of nodding heads. And that's because many of us have been at this for a while. And we recognize that we're part of an upside-down kingdom. But how much sense does that make outside these walls? In the school you go to, in the place you work at, the people you rub shoulders with, how much sense does that make? It doesn't. It doesn't compute in this world. And so here's what the author of Revelation says next about this Jesus. He isn't just the one who boundaries the oppressive rulers of the world. He also, and here now we have verse 6. He says of this Jesus, after he's described him, he says, To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom. What? passage or narrative of scripture do you think is in his mind here as he says made us to be a kingdom of priests serving his God and Father. This is Exodus 19. And now this Christian author in this apocalyptic surprising disclosure says to these Christians this is actually who you are. You're not a bunch of half-lethargic people who managed to scrape up enough energy to get here on a Saturday night and sing a few songs. You are part of the kingdom of priests. What does he mean by that? Well, the first question we should probably ask is, what does a priest do? 
A priest mediates and represents and draws people to God and God to people and provides a connection for the inbreaking peace and, and, and the kingdom and the salvation of God to break into people's lives. So if that's what a priest does, and the author has now taken Exodus 19 and said, the job description of Israel as a nation has now become the calling for all of the Christians in Asia Minor. This is who you are. You are the ones who mediate this king who's the ruler of the kings of the earth. You are the ones charged with, privileged with, the call to participate and invite people into a kingdom that is upside down where might doesn't make right, where you have the opportunity to stand with the oppressed. Now, even here, it's careful to note that this author has his eye firmly on how it's God's gracious activity that makes this happen, right? How is it that we all have the opportunity to be part of this kingdom of priests? Number one, the author says, he loved us. Nothing we do, nothing we earn, nothing we deserve. He loved us. That's the first thing that allows us to even think about the possibility of participating in this kingdom. Secondly, he freed us. It's not, we're, we're not to assume that we were flawless or are flawless, but in our broken state, He loved us and freed us from our sin. And the point here, for many of us, for those of us who recognize, I understand that the kingdom of God really is about bringing God's peace and God's justice to the world, but I just don't know if I can do it. Why? I'm too broken. I'm too flawed. I'm not holy enough. I'm not ready. I, I'm not adventurous enough. It takes some courage. I'm not charismatic enough. I'm not dedicated or disciplined enough. I'm too boring, too average. And I'm here to tell you that precisely those features of who we all are when we come together collectively by God's Spirit, that's what qualifies us to bring God's shalom to a world of people who also believe the same things about themselves. And it's the power and the grace of God that says, not only is there a king who rules over the kings of the earth, but this king has commissioned a kingdom, invited you and I to participate in this work. That's why we're here. That's why we come. And that's the full range of what it means to worship God in this world. The next thing that the author does then is he introduces these Christians to who this Jesus really is. What does he look like? Well, in Revelation 1, 12 to 16, and building on some of the images from Daniel 7, this author describes Jesus, and we'll read it together just very quickly. All right? John heard a voice, and then he turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to him. And on turning, he says, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. This is Daniel 7. He was clothed with a long robe and a golden sash across his chest. This is Daniel chapter 10. His head and his hair were white as wool, white as snow. This again is Daniel chapter 7. He's using these images from the book of Daniel to describe this figure that he sees. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze and refined, as refined in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in all its brightness. This is the description of this risen, exalted Jesus. Why is this description so necessary? Right? We've already said that it's the cross of Jesus that defines the kind of action that God takes in the world. But what's important here, and I highlighted two things in red in the text I want you to notice very quickly. It says that he saw seven golden lampstands, and this figure is in the midst of the lampstands. Well, remember I told you this was an apocalypse, and an apocalyptic author uses symbols and images. And lampstand is one of those basic images that he actually tells us what it means. So we hold on to that and we say, all right, good. Well, at least I know what that one means. And a lampstand was representative for a church that John was addressing, or Jesus through John was addressing in Revelation chapter 1. So the first thing, and again, come back to the big question. Why are we here? Why are we doing what we do? John tells these Christians that the location of this risen, exalted Jesus is not on some far-off planet, is not in some abstract idea in your head, but this Jesus is actually present wherever the people of God gather. Wherever there's a lampstand, there is the risen Jesus walking among his people. So it's really important to recognize that Jesus didn't do a really great thing, give us the mission, and then take off. This is not some absentee landlord. This risen, exalted Jesus walks with and among his people. He is present by word and spirit. Between his ascension and his return, the parousia, it's not as though he's going to be gone. He is present among his people. Why is it crucial that we have this sense that worship is a full-orbed participation when we come together in the kingdom of God? It's because it's here that the risen and exalted Jesus is present among us. And do we dare believe even right now? Even as we commit ourselves to focusing our lives and our energies on Him, as we think about what it means to be the people of God, God is honored and Jesus is present even as we're doing what we're doing right now. This is Jesus at work among His people. If you look at all the descriptive phrases, John has intentionally described Jesus in terms of hair, eyes, hands, feet, in all of these different ways. Each of these features communicates something about what it is that God is doing in the world. And if we had another three hours tonight, we could unpack what each of those things means. But suffice it to say that this Jesus is present, he knows, he sees, and he empowers. Right? If the person of Jesus seems like a distant figure in history or an irrelevant object of worship for a few misguided souls, John reclaims the consistent biblical message that God is active and at work in the world with spectacular but reimagined power. God is at work right now in the greater Dayton area through many communities of faith that gather, including us here right now. What do you think is actually going on in the world as we gather? 
Does this make any difference at all? Can God speak to us and show us yet another glimpse of his kingdom and his intent and energize us and enliven us to do his work in the world? Well, here's going to be the biggest hurdle. And look at John's response to the risen Jesus in chapter 1. I think that all of us can identify this. When I saw him, right, this is awesome. This is the risen, exalted Jesus, including features of the Ancient of Days from Daniel 7 and chapter 10. This Jesus, when John sees him, he fell at his feet as though dead. But Jesus placed his right hand on me, John says, saying, do not be afraid. That may well be the single most important line in all the Gospels in the New Testament, which this Jesus in the book of Revelation now repeats, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead and see, I'm alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. So what do we make with this? What is it about John that he falls at his feet? John understands what he's seeing. There's something else about this that's too much for him. I don't think he falls at Jesus' feet as though dead because somehow he doesn't believe it could be him. What happens here is this. John is afraid. And as we look throughout Scripture, people who encountered God's presence often had these experiences of fear. And the fear was rooted most often in their sense of unworthiness. There's just something about encountering this wonderful upside-down king, this unassuming king who has the power to speak a different word, to reject the definitions of power that are at work in our world, and to inaugurate an upside-down kingdom where the greatest serves the least and love forgives its enemies and invites people into shalom. That, sh that sounds so attractive. It sounds so good. Why is it so threatening to John? He's afraid because of his own inadequacy. Think back to Isaiah. Think back to so many... Jeremiah, right? This sense of unworthiness. And to bring this into even sharper focus, and I want to bring this to a conclusion very quickly. Bring it even into sharper focus. I want to remind you of that little episode in Luke chapter 5. Do you remember where Peter and his friends are out fishing and, uh, and, and they are told to throw the net on the other side? The haul of fish is incredible. And as they come back to shore, Peter steps out of the boat after he'd received the instructions from Jesus from the beach, and you know the story, the little episode there in Luke 5, and Peter's response is to say, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinner. I mean, Peter actually says what all the rest of us think, right? He, he's able to articulate how we feel. Go away from... I mean, this is an incredibly good thing that Jesus has just done. Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinner. I venture to say that the thing that will hold us back most from actually believing that we are a kingdom of priests and participating in God's restoring shalom in the world is that we're afraid of ourselves. 
We're afraid of our own brokenness, our own sin. Oh yeah, it's easy to come in here and wave flags and sing songs. But when you go back home and you lay down in your bed and you stare at the ceiling, you still have to think about who you actually are. And for many of us, that's just a scary thought. I'm broken. I'm a sinner. Go away from me, Lord. Can you imagine? He's probably already heard Jesus say things like, I came for the sinner. But his instinctive human response is still to say, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinner. And here is John in Revelation 1, falls down as though dead, afraid. Why? His own sinfulness. I want to come back to an observation that I made earlier on, that this is a book about the gospel of God's good news, the inbreaking shalom. What is it that Jesus said to Peter when Peter said, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinner? Does anybody remember? He said, Luke 5, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid? What are you talking about? I mean, he could have said, oh, don't worry about it. I'll forgive your sins. Let's just go on. He could have said something else like, you know, it's going to get better, right? You're not going to be as bad of a sinner someday as you are today. Don't worry about it. He didn't say that. He just said, do not be, af do not be afraid of what? What was Jesus saying? Do not be afraid of him? Or was Jesus saying, do not be afraid of your own brokenness. Do not be afraid of your own sin. The instinctive response when we come into contact with a good God is to be afraid. He's other. By the way, you notice how often we sang the word holy in the songs that we sang today? What's interesting about that word is really at its core, I'm going to give you a real deep theological definition of what the word holy means. It means different. It means other. It, it's not nearly as compelling, is it, if we sing, Other, 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 Lord God Almighty. But that really is, you're not like me. And when, when we're faced with our own brokenness and our sinfulness, and we encounter this other God, this ruler of the kings of the earth, the temptation is just to fear. Listen to what the book of Acts, chapter 10, verse 38, said in summarizing the mission of Jesus. Here's what the early Christians preached about Jesus. It's deeply theological. He went about doing good. That's the kingdom of God in action. Why do we show up? Why do we come here and encourage one another? Why are we part of this kingdom? What does it mean to be part of the kingdom of priests? Well, in this unbelievable kingdom, we have the opportunity to follow a king who went about doing good. And as a kingdom of priests, we're invited to participate, not to be afraid of our own brokenness, but to embrace the presence and the power of Jesus in everyday life and live out this kingdom of shalom because he went about doing good and that's what he calls us to do. I want to conclude by reminding uh, some of you who have already read it and ruining it for some of you who haven't 
of a little episode in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. C.S. Lewis wrote this as a children's story to try to depict what it means to really live into the life of the kingdom of God. And there's a point in this story where, and those of you who have either read the book or watched the movie, you know there's a point where the kids end up at Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's house. You remember that part of the story? Here's what the conversation went like. When in Narnia, the children met Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who described to them a mighty lion. Is he a man? said Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, Revelation chapter 1, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Course he isn't safe, but he's good. The early Christians said that Jesus went about doing good. And the author of Revelation has just a little bit of a take, different take on that. He said, this Jesus was the true king. He was the ruler of all the kings of the earth. And his definition of power was very different. And not only was he the king, but he invites us to participate as priests in that kingdom. And so I'd like to come right back to the very first question I asked you and say, why do we do what we do? Why do we come here? Why do we show up? Why do we gather with the people of God? Is this just a routine or a habit or a pattern? Or is it possible that there's something at work in the world? There is a kingdom that is turning upside down the kingdoms of this world. Because one day, the kingdom of this world will be the kingdom of our Lord and of His Messiah. And He will reign forever and ever. And the wonderful news of Revelation chapter 1 is you don't have to wait to see it. You can buy in now, participate now, offer the shalom of Yahweh to the world in which God has called you to now. Not next week, not next month, right now.